welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we have a very special guest, uh, Mike Montero. Um, hello, Mike. How are you doing? Hello, David. How are you? Uh, very good. Uh, so I was actually on Mike's podcast not too long ago talking about cognitive bias in tech, and we're going to kind of revisit that conversation uh, through the lens of a book, a really great book, if I do say so myself, uh, that Mike wrote called Ruined by Design. Mike, tell us a little bit about the book and what you were trying to uh, tackle. Well, first off, thank you for the kind words about it. Um, the point of Ruined by Design was really to talk about designers' responsibility mm-hmm. uh, and eth- ethical responsibility and, and um, both and activist responsibilities, mm. really. We have an enormous opportunity to help shade the in- shape shade <laughs> that, that was freudian <laughs> you you do you throw know. a lot of shade in the book and it's welcome <laughs> oh thank you um i mean we've got an incredible opportunity to help shape these industries that we're in and it's not i mean it's it's our responsibility as, as designers to do that and uh i don't see us doing it mm-hmm. And quite often, the people that I see who are doing it um, feel like they're the only feel alone. Mm. So the main purpose of the book was to to uh, prop those people up and to let them know that uh, they had company, that there were that there were other people who feel like them in the world, who feel like there is a, a right way to design things, and. Uh, to make sure that we're designing things that leave the the, the world in a, in a better place than when we found it, and that this stuff's really not optional. Well, I like what you say there about like community and a sense of community for the folks who might feel like they're alone. And there's definitely a very big bias called the bandwagon bias, where they've done experiments where if you are told basically if you are sitting in a room of people, and you're told that something patently untrue is true, and everybody else in the room is in on it and after 12 responses they get to you and you say is this untrue thing true you'll likely say yes <laughs> just because of the pressure but if you put I just think we're seeing that now what's that i think we're seeing that now. yeah but in, in um well, I'm, I'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt oh no 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 go, go ahead it's your podcast <laughs> well what i was gonna say was that like the, what's interesting about that experiment is if you put just one confident in the room just one other person who says no that thing is untrue the last person, you know, the actual uh, subject of the experiment, gets enough confidence to then say, uh, yeah, obviously, <laughs> right? So if, even if we can just get line of sight to one other person who's trying to do it, it seems like that actually can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes total sense to me. If you're the only one who has a specific belief, you start feeling insane. Yeah, yeah. Even, uh, you know, even if you knew from the get-go that, hey, this, the, the world is round, but if everybody around you starts talking about how it's flat, you start wondering, like, did I imagine that it was right? Yeah. Where does that come from? So how do we how do we do a better job of getting like line of sight to the other people who are trying to do the right thing? Uh, oh, well, one we have to we have to be vocal. We have to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we have to we have to get our, our voices heard. So. It's it's funny we um, you and I met even though you're originally from Philly I live there now now you live in San Fran but we did not meet in Philly or San oh, don't Fran. Don't say San Fran. Don't <laughs> Come San on. Francisco. SF <laughs> is also okay. Oh okay no that's good to know. Um, uh, you know you know what's weird I've now lived here longer than I lived there. Oh really? How long is that? Across that. Uh, say 20, I think I've been here 20 years now. Wow. So the funny thing is, we didn't meet in either of those places. We met in Copenhagen, of all places. So we were at a, yeah, we were at a, a conference called UX Copenhagen, and I was giving a talk where I was talking about design and cognitive bias and how, basically, a big bias I wanted to talk about is called deformation professionnelle, and it's this bias where you view the world through the lens of your job, and depending on how you view your job, that can be really destructive. And I kind of end on this note of, gee, I wish we could find a better way to define our job as designers that allows us to be more human to each other. And that's as far as I had gotten in that talk. 
because I hadn't heard your talk yet, because the very next day you gave a talk that basically starts to say, well, here's how we might define it. And it feels like your book is trying to flesh that out a little. So how do you think we should be design, uh, defining our jobs as designers? Well, I think the, the first, so, sorry, I'm still getting started in the morning. <laughs> um, we, we, we solve problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, a designer is somebody who solves a problem, and first off, we need we we, we need to expand who who we're talking about when we say designers. Because mm-hmm. I mean, anybody who works at your company or your organization who's helping mold the thing that you're working on in any sort of way is 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 designing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, from you know from from uh, a PM who gives you uh, a deadline that was half of what you were hoping for. Sure. They're certainly, if they're certainly affecting the design of that thing. Um, so the, uh, a manager who tells you you can only have you know six people on this project and t- instead of the twelve that you asked for, they're certainly influencing the design of this thing in, in a lot of ways more than you ever did. Yeah. We have to understand that we design as groups. And not everybody in that group is what has been traditionally called a designer in the past. It's right? such a problematic word for me. Yeah. Um, I, I, the verb, I think if we start talking about the verb to design, people who are designing, I think uh, that really helps. If we start talking about uh, people who, who carry around the title of designer, then uh, we start siloing this problem. In fact, one of the things I hear most often is, is this is really a PM's responsibility, <laughs> not a designer. Yeah. Which is amazing to me. Um, so that's the first thing that we knew, need to do is, is, is get past that who's a designer bullshit and just realize that everybody who's touching this thing is, is designing it. Secondly, we need to look at who's actually touching this thing. Because, I mean, the history of, of the Internet is really a history of, of people who we didn't let touch the Internet, people who we didn't involve in, in, in the process of building the Internet. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, about Twitter, and I talk about Twitter a lot in the book. Um, you can't imagine why. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if – if there's a if there's a flaming garbage fire <laughs> on your block, you you look at it. You can't not stare at it all the time. Like why why is there still a trash fire down there? Um, the Twitter was designed by four four white boys, and uh, I don't think they were assholes at the time that they were designing it. But they had they carried with it the biases of four white boys who only knew what life was like for four relatively well-to-do white boys and it took a year for them to implement blocking on the site Mm. which to to me seems like something you you cannot roll out without but none of them had ever had an experience where they had to block anyone yeah where they had to like be fearful of what somebody might be saying about them or, or or saying to them or threatening them or you know uh, 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 being stalked online or, or you know, a- a- any of the stuff that happens to, to so many people out there on a, on a daily basis and, and, in fact, happens to, to people every day on, on, the go- on that goddamn site. But it, it didn't occur to any of them that that sort of safety feature was necessary. Yeah, if you've never been harassed before, harassment doesn't make it into the, uh, anti-harassment doesn't make it into the MVP. Right. So if, if, we, if, if we're looking at the groups who are designing these things and those groups start looking like, you know, a shelf of Chobani yogurt, <laughs> you, start, you, 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 sh- you stop. You got to stop. And you got to ask yourself, are these the people that I'm designing for? Mm-hmm. Is there anybody missing from this equation? Should I get more of a point of view on here? Do I don't I don't you want people who come from like different places and have different experiences and grew up in different types of of communities to be involved in these products from the get-go? They're going to be so much stronger at a foundational level. That's the biggest thing that we need to fix. 
I had somebody come up to me. Um, I forget where this conference was, but they came up to me after the talk, and one of the things that, that I had talked about is how, uh, uh, my God, we need to hire some women in tech, for Christ's sake. And um, he, he, he it, it, in, in a very, like, uh, open, well-meaning sort of way, he says, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about hiring women. How big do you think a company needs to be before it starts hiring women? Oh, my God. <laughs> And this wasn't even an asshole. Right, right. I, it's funny. I, I have been to diversity conferences with some amazingly undiverse opinions being espoused by people who signed up for and paid to go to a diversity conference. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it checked. I mean, those things check something off somebody's list. Yeah. And they make somebody feel good about what they're doing. So, yeah, I feel like that's one of the key ways to combat bias is complementary biases, right? That, you know, we're never going to eliminate it, but if you have people who have different experiences and are bringing their own unique bias to it, you end up with a stronger product because you're, you know, covering a greater set of uh, potential holes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody at work when I was, you know, a thinking up a solution to something just like slap me upside the head uh uh, uh not literally <laughs> um, a couple times literally and 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 say what kind of idiot are you like are you not seeing a b c and d mm -hmm. and the truth is i wasn't i wasn't seeing a b c and d but they saw it right away yeah um and I mean, another thing that we have to do is we have to thank people who do this. We have to thank people who slap us upside the head and say, hey, idiot, didn't you see A, B, C, and D? And we have to thank them for seeing those things. Well, it's like the, the slap upside the head needs to be a necessary part of the design process and a funded position, right? Like, you need that. And there's, there's versions of this in, like, red team, blue team, and other kind of approaches to design yeah. that, that weirdly, like, the military have already caught on to or journalists have already caught on to and just hasn't quite yeah. made it into design. But, you know, the designated uh, provocateur or, or whatever you want to call that role where it's someone's actual role. So because the other thing that happens, right, is there, there's a weird power dynamic going on where even if you can see the flaw, are you in a position where you feel safe? You feel like you're not going to lose your health insurance if you point it out. Right. Oh, boy, we could talk about health insurance for now. Oh, man. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about it, because that is one of the sort of key things you point out is, like, because you're, you're, you're telling designers about this role they need to play, but you're acknowledging, like, what's not easy about that. Well, there, there's an ethical way to do the job. There's an ethical way to do every job. Um, and that's non-negotiable. I just want to put that out there. Mm -hmm. However, however, and this is a big however, imagine that you're... At 23 years old, you just graduated from college. You have a hundred grand in debt in some places, depending on where you went. And now you got and and uh, you got this nice cushy job at Facebook right out of school. All of a sudden, that 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 ridiculous amount of of criminal student loans that you were carrying around, all of a sudden you've got a way to pay those down. Mm. I mean, I graduated when I graduated from college. I believe I graduated with seven grand in loans. Mm. Thank you, Temple University. <laughs> <laughs> seven grand, and I remember sitting on my steps, thinking, "How the hell am I ever gonna pay down seven thousand dollars?" That number was insurmountable to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And now kids are, are leaving school, and you know. I mean, and there are people listening to this podcast right now who are saying like seven grand. I know. I, I'm saying that I had at least forty grand, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you, I mean, I, I'm I'm probably older than you. Um. So you got kids walking around with this incredible amount of debt, and they're going to places like Facebook, who have a very young workforce, and. Um, Let's see, you're, you're asked to do something that sounds a little bit shady, and you think, well, you know, I, I should probably fight this. 
But at the same time, you're thinking, oh God, I got like 80, 90 grand in debt that these people are helping me pay down. The other scenario is um, same scenario. You're asked to do something that's kind of shady. You, you recognize that it's kind of shady. Uh, but but you or somebody in your family has a medical issue mm -hmm. and you need access to medical care. So are you gonna are you gonna rock the boat and risk losing your medical care? I mean, I'm telling you right now, if I had a sick kid at home and my my medical care was tied to my employer and they wanted me to do something shady, I'm picking my sick kid. Yeah. And I wouldn't bl and I wouldn't blame anybody anybody who did that and then you've got you've got a, a, a tremendous percentage of the workforce down in silicon valley who's there on h1b visas mm. and if they rock the boat they get sent home or i'm sorry home is actually the wrong word to use because for a lot of those people that's not home yeah this is home yeah some some of those people had to leave those places you know under threat of getting killed I mean, I was talking. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, who's um, she's here from the Philippines, and um, she was having a ton of visa issues, and she thought that she was going to get sent back. Now mm. things got worked out at the last minute, and she gets to stay here. But I mean, this this is this is Philippines is not a good place for a young woman. Yeah. And, and again, I mean. There's ethical and there's unethical, but holy shit, can we please make it easy for these people? Just a little bit easier. Yeah. So until we deal with health care and with student loans and stop fucking around with immigration issues in this country, we're in trouble. Because you've got a gigantic workforce here that, that's being shackled by these three things and probably others that I'm not even thinking of. Um, and we got to help these people out. So, you know, when you've got, I mean, I've been, I've been invited to talks where people are like, yeah, this is great. We love you to have, we love you to talk about this, but can you not make it political? <laughs> I'm like, how the fuck is this not so, how can you, you can't, you cannot make this political because there's absolutely nothing that we can do at work to fix the, to, to, to fix the healthcare problem and the student loan problem and the immigration problem. That shit gets fixed at the polls. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's an interesting point, too, because you kind of keep coming back to this notion that people like to think of design as apolitical, but you really center around the notion that design is a political act. So how do we sort of define what is political and kind of, you know, dig in a little, like, how, you, how, how do you mean that? Nobody who's ever been excluded from the process has said that it's an apolitical act, by the way. Mm. <laughs> That's usually people on, you know, p people who are trying to protect being on the inside. You know, when I hear people talk about inclusion, like you've already told me what side of the fence you're on. Mm -hmm. You're already on the inside talking about how, you know, well, we'll bring you in, but it needs to be slow. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck you, we're out here in the cold. So, I forgot where I was going. I'm, you got me angry. <laughs> you know that's a short walk. I was going to say, it's like, is that really that hard a thing to do, Mike? <laughs> um, especially on this topic, though, right? Uh, so, we were talking about design as a political act, right? That there's no such thing as apolitical design. And I kind of want to just unpack, like, like what, what makes it a political act, or how do we define what is or isn't a political act? Well, the minute that you decide to include or exclude people from something, it becomes a political act. Mm -hmm. The minute that you that you decide that you know you're building something for a, a certain type of people with a certain type of people, excluding others, not listening mm -hmm. to other people, and decide, okay, the the most important thing that matters here mm -hmm. is these types of people and those types of people are usually shareholders mm -hmm. um erica hall who i know mm -hmm. um she wrote something a while ago on uh the triple bottom line mm -hmm. 
of where she talks about measuring um, not just profitability or you know customer satisfaction, which you know is those two are a little too closely tied together, but also um, uh, uh, the effect that a product or service has on society, mm -hmm. and how that needs to be measured um, as much as, if not more so, than those other two things. You don't get to make money by creating a product that tears society apart. Mm. You just don't have that right. And, and if your product can't make money without, you know, letting in, in Nazis and, and white supremacists, then shut it the hell down. So it's interesting. In, in, in case anybody uh, was talking about Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this, yeah, and, and this, this kind of comes back to kind of an incentivization problem that uh, I, I kind of want to talk about a couple different ways. So one thing, and I was talking to um, Meredith Broussard a few podcasts ago about um, the sort of libertarian strain in Silicon Valley, you know, oh, God, founders. Worse than the they are worse than the Nazis. So, so you know, th this is you know, and one of the things you talk about is this notion of like being born on third base and thinking you had a triple, right? Like, I feel like that is sort of leans easily great. into. <laughs> great Ann Richards. <laughs> yeah. Great Ann Richards, former governor of Texas, said that uh, said that great line at the Democratic convention of '84, maybe. Maybe 84, maybe 88. They're born on third base and think they hit a triple. Yeah, and I, and you, you, I feel like that is sort of easy bedfellows with the kind of libertarian strain you're seeing in a lot of like Silicon Valley founders and all that stuff. So I'm curious, like, how does that all intertwine together and kind of lead us in the direction we're going of being okay with Nazis on Twitter? Oh, I mean... I mean, the, the, the basic tenet of, of libertarianism is... I got mine. Fuck you. Mm -hmm. So um, if and if you don't have as much as me, it's because you're not as worthy as me. You're not mm. as smart as me. You haven't hustled as much as me because you had all the same opportunities that I did, which, you know, right there is a, a gigantic crack in the foundation of that thinking. Mm -hmm. I, it, they're not they're not even worth being taken seriously. They're clowns. Libertarians are clowns. So, and it sounds like it's all being founded on this, you know, meritocracy myth. And one of the things I talk about. Oh, God, what a bullshit oh, word. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's tear, the. Th tear it down. Go ahead. So, so there is a, there's a couple, um, I think I've, I've come out on the podcast as saying this is my, the bias that I have the most hatred and vitriol for. And it's called just world hypothesis. And it really is what it sounds like, right? That the world is a just, that again, it's called just world hypothesis, that the world oh, you live in is just. And, and basically it's, you know, and, and it's, it's funny too, because it applies to people who are on the business end of the falsehood <laughs> of meritocracy as well. Like everyone feels more comfortable believing that the world they live in is just. Um, and, uh, you know, what basically happens is if you hear about something bad happening to somebody, your first instinct isn't, oh, I wonder what circumstances or systemic influences led to that. You think, oh, they must have done something wrong. Right? Oh, they're sick. Ooh, they must have done something wrong. Oh, they're poor. Ooh, they must have done something wrong. Right? Because it can't be the world's fault because the world is just. And you can imagine all the horrible victim blaming that this leads to. But it feels like that's easy bedfellows with you know this notion of you know I got mine. Fuck you. Right? Like you know all I have to to be responsible for is my own you know um, getting. And uh, and if anyone else has a problem, well, it's, it's it is literally their problem. The system itself has to be fine. And I feel like, I, and I wonder if that is also kind of an impediment to people standing up or people being willing to point out the flaws. Because I know personally, 
I was in that whole band of idealists in the early days of the web thinking, oh, this is going to change everything and bring equity and bring all these voices to the table, right? And, And I'm sure, like me, you were heartbroken as it became very clear what in retrospect was inevitable, <laughs> right? But I feel like I wonder if the belief in that, because it, it was our own version of just world hypothesis. It's, it's like just Silicon Valley hypothesis, right? And I wonder if that's part of what makes it hard for people to kind of wake up and kind of say, okay, this is a systemic thing we need to, to deal with. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're seeing this right now. I mean, even people, even, even the, the dipshits of Silicon Valley are admitting that, you know, the... Um, the internet didn't quite work out the way they were thinking uh just are, are starting to believe that they just put their bets on the wrong horse mm-hmm. and uh they should be they, they need to move their bets over to the blockchain mm-hmm. because that's that's the thing that's going to fix everything sure <laughs> you know there there there's absolutely there's there's no spot on earth that's level by nature if you if you're going to make a level playing field, the first thing that you need is a bulldozer. Mm. And I'm too angry to talk to. <laughs> Can we talk about movies? <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's this movie Blind Spotting, which is about bias. No, um, you, you should actually see it. That's very very good. Um, well, we can we, let's talk about something a little more positive. Right? What we can do to change this, right? Because it seems like there were all these blind spots that kind of led us where we are now. And some of those blind spots came from things that people who design stuff never even thought they needed to know about. So I want to talk a little bit about education and how we might change how educators are, how educators, how designers, and again, designers being all of the different people, right, right. <laughs> uh, who touch a product, like, you know, what, what can we, what should, what, what should we have been teaching them and what should we start teaching them now? You can get um, you can get an entire design education without ever taking an ethics class, mm-hmm. without without hearing the word ethics, mm-hmm. even. Um, we're I mean design education is is still so broken, and I say this with a lot of respect for a lot of design educators who are out there trying to do the hard work and trying to fix it, and I know they are. And you know, much strength to them. Uh, but as a whole, it's inherently broken, and that com- that still comes from a very antiquated idea of what design is. Mm. I mean, I got my I, I, y- you get design degrees in art school. That's that's like that's like going to a, to a fruit stand to pick up a pacemaker. <laughs> The two things have nothing to do with each other. I mean, the shit that we're dealing with now on, on the internet and, and, the, and the other digital crap that we make, that has absolutely nothing to do with, with the shit that I learned in art school. And um, I mean, I mean there's still like a ton of designers out there, and God, I've interviewed enough of them, who you know talk about things like their vision and shit and you know creativity and i mean jesus christ i mean the aiga is still teaching this shit and taking people's money Mm. for this shit so i mean you get a bad you get you you can become a press a a professional designer by having uh, a woefully incomplete design education which you've paid a ton of money for and then you get out there in the world, and I mean, most designers who I talk to still feel like you know, they're like the only one in the company who care about this shit, or they're like in some bunker, trying not not to get uh, killed by the other people who are w- working with them because nobody's taught them how to deal with the other the other people. Like, I can't imagine like you can get a design education and not learn how to talk to an engineer. Mm how to have a civilized, informed conversation with an engineer. How you, you, you don't learn how to talk to, to like a, a, a business analyst. You don't learn how to talk to a product manager. I mean, how much of a designer's job is dealing with that shit? Yeah. Or how to talk to a client, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean Jesus Christ, talk about low-hanging fruit. 
Yeah. You don't learn how to talk to clients, and and you don't and you don't learn about you know how to talk, how to present your work to any of these people. Really? So, oh God, yes. I mean, I've I've been out there teaching a workshop on how to present your work to people, and you've got designers who are like, "This is what I made. I hope you like it." Like they're presenting a crown drawing, to you know, to their dad. Mm-hmm. Instead of like, instead of here's here's a a, a a solution to 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 this business problem that I've you know thought through using you know professional methods. Yeah, and one of the things you you talk about is this idea that it, it might be easier to teach psychologists UX than vice versa, and and that like makes me wonder like are those uh, Sarah Walker Betra has this great quote where she talks about how um, you know people think of tech as you know a technical field right you're building things with science and math and you know digital wizardry and you know that's it whereas no actually it's about people you're building things for people that are going to affect people and they are out of their league like they they have not been educated in people (laughs) so clearly she's she's absolutely right (laughs) yeah she is absolutely right i mean the stuff that we're doing online now is all about people interacting with other people Mm -hmm. the technical problems have by and large, been figured out. And any new ones that come up will figure those out. But that hasn't turned out to be the big problem of our industry. The big problem of our, in, of our industry is how human beings relate to each other. Mm. And anything I know about that, I learned accidentally or on my own. Yeah, and it, and it seems like we stumbled into... it's It's this weird mix of not understanding how people relate to each other, but then these weird economic incentives that kind of work better if people aren't doing it well, right? <laughs> like we see like, you know, the rabbit holes that YouTube can send you down because their algorithm has decided that's more profitable or why you keep, why you let Trump stay on Twitter because it's going to make you more money. Because I, I think one of the things we have to talk about is, you know, how do we design, and this is something you, you keep hitting on as well in the book, is like it, these things don't emerge by accident. These are designed. These tools are designed to do certain things for certain economic incentives. And I want to talk a little about how do we rethink that? How do we think about a so pro-social <laughs> right, business model? Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the points I make in the book is that none of, none of these products are broken. Mm-hmm. Twitter, Twitter's not broken. Facebook's not broken. They're working exactly how they've been designed to work. They, they're, they're doing everything that the people who are designing it, and, I, and, and that's everybody from the top down, everything that they intended to happen or, or want to happen on those platforms is happening. Twitter's only goal is to generate noise. Mm. It, to generate noise so that you so so that you get on there and you argue and you generate more noise. I mean, it's it's like a nuclear reactor out of control. It's one chain reaction after another, ex- and, and it's generating a lot of energy. Except it's it's you know, they they haven't realized that what they're sitting on is a nuclear reactor out of control yet. And how does book about? Reading a book about Chernobyl. Oh, uh, okay. Did you watch Chernobyl? Top of mind. Did you watch Chernobyl? I, oh my God, yes. Oh. And uh, I watched it, and now I'm reading Midnight in Chernobyl. Mm. And then I'm going to watch it again. Yeah, I, we could do a whole podcast about that, and 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 there's, and as as a metaphor for the current state of the world. <laughs> there's also a documentary out there that I want to hit mm-hmm. uh, called The Babushkas of Chernobyl. Hmm. Have you heard of this? No. It's about three old women who are living in uh, the, what, is it, what do they call it, the Forbidden Zone, or the, probably the very super special zone, um, <laughs> if it has Soviet naming. Uh, but they've just eked out um, a life there. Mm. So I'm putting that on my list. So one of the, one of the things that um, we've chatted about before and you, you mentioned in the book. So there, there's, there's a, a bias uh, I've talked about a lot called in-group, out-group bias. Um, and it's just this notion that, you know, you think of the people, once you've decided what your in-group is, like, 
which is happens remarkably quickly, <laughs> um, you will think they're better than anyone you've decided is in the out group, um, just for no reason, just because they're not in the in group. Um, oh, and it, it's not a conscious decision who the in group is. Mm. I mean, that's decided when you start hiring people. Well, that's what I want to talk about, right? Is this notion of people who want to do good. And then we've kind of chatted about this, like once they're in the machine, all of a sudden their loyalties seem to switch from like the good of society to the good of the company. Can you talk a little about that? So, I mean, we've, this is the hijacking of community mm. that, I, that I mentioned um, in the book. Um, when I was, I mean, when I was growing up in, you know, Philly, which is now a food town, which is really weird to me. <laughs> but we'll save that for another podcast. Sure. I mean, our community was, was our block. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, the old ladies who sat on the stoops yelling at us that I'm going to tell your mother what you're doing. And it was the, the corner store that would, you know, give us credit when we needed it. And it was, you know, the church that was two blocks down and the YMCA. And it was it was everything that we could walk to as kids was our community. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I grew up. Like people in your neighborhood, that's who you care about. Like, like, like it's it's like it, it's like a, a circle that radiates out. Like there's there's you, there's the people in your house, and there's people in your neighborhood, and there's people in your city. Those those are your communities, um, and that's that's totally gone now. And, and you've got I mean these kids who work at um, and and I don't mean to demean anybody when I say kids. God bless you. You're young. Do drugs get laid. <laughs> um, oh God, all that stuff is so much more fun than sitting there coding. Um, but I mean, they go from they go from like. Do you, where'd you go to school, David? Uh, Friends School, Baltimore. Th they have a nice campus. Oh, very nice, actually. Yeah, you. So you you enjoyed your campus, right? Yeah. Your college campus. So that was the next community in your life after your neighborhood. You went to college, and and they do a really good job in colleges of saying, "Hey, you're you're part of our community now. Here's a sweatshirt with our name on it," and. Um, Here's, you know, a nice gathering place in the middle of the school with a nice lawn that, you know, uh, everybody can hang out in. And you're now part of us. And um, please return once you've graduated and send us checks, mm -hmm. which is the whole, you know, one of the reasons for that. Um, so that's the next community in a human being's life. Mm, sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and now... Um, you go from that community, you go to a, a giant campus. Um, you know, you, so you go from like your college campus to your Facebook campus or your Apple campus or, you know, any of those other campuses down there in Silicon Valley. And those are very intentionally modeled after the college experience, mm -hmm. uh, but with a ton more money. Mm. Um, I mean, Jesus, the first time that I went to the Facebook campus, um, I went there to give a talk, and uh, I got when I when I got there, I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. It was like a combination between being in college and walking through Main Street in Disneyland. Mm, yeah, everything was there. Yeah, everything was there. Everything I needed was there. They have mental health services there on the Facebook campus, which we could talk about for hours. Uh, <laughs> problems with that. But everything you want is there, and all the people that you hang out with are there, and you hang out with those people for more than eight hours a day. Because mm -hmm. you got people putting in like 12, 15 hour days. And then you get on a bus and, and you go to sleep. You go to sleep in, in you know some apartment that you rented in San Francisco, probably displacing a Mexican family, multi-generational that had been there for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, but that's not your community. That's just the place where you go to sleep in be before you go back to your community the next day. Yeah. So your allegiance is tied to that place. Your allegiance is not tied to your neighborhood. It's not tied to your local grocer. It's not tied to, you know, the old lady across the street. And it's not tied to, you know, the kids who play on your block. It's tied to that giant campus where your friends are and your barber shop is and your mental health services and the ice cream parlor and the climbing wall. 
So when there's a nasty story that breaks about Facebook, that's not, you know, somebody criticizing your job. That's somebody criticizing your community. Yeah. That's somebody coming after you and yours. Yeah, and there's something to the physical dislocation too, right? That, you know, Menlo Park is very far from San Francisco, right? You got to hike right and so when you step outside that campus you're not seeing san francisco you're seeing a train line <laughs> you know you're seeing a highway yeah. right you're so marshes you're seeing marshes you're seeing the bay you're seeing you, you there's nothing else there yeah and so and if you walk for a little bit you'll hit somebody else's community behind a bunch of shrubs if yeah you like that that terrible m night shamalian <laughs> so to narrow that down yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's even, even that, I think, you know, there's less of, you know, there's more of a disconnect, right? And it's easier to separate what you're doing from the physical space. Even when I was, you know, um, when I was at Hopkins, like Hopkins is located smack in the middle of Baltimore. You step outside, go two blocks and, you know, you're going to get mugged. Not, not anymore, but <laughs> when I was there, yes. <laughs> but, but like you have, you're able to, you're able to make that connection more clearly. And I, I, I would bet you dollars to donuts. The odds of you doing something community centered go up when you graduate. If you grow up around a community and you see that community every day, versus if you're sort of isolated from all of that and you're like, well, I only have to think about my company or I only have to think about myself because that's all I actually see every day. Right. So, so when somebody criticizes what's happening at Facebook, and I've seen this, I've seen because I know I know people who work there. Um, they're attacking us. They're mm. attacking Mark. They're coming after Mark. Mm. It's like they've circled the wagons. It's a, it's a it's a death cult. Yeah, we could probably do a whole episode about the cult of personality that seems to go with <laughs> these kinds of scenarios. Um, and how disturbingly similar it is to the rise of populism. Yeah, we could do a whole series on that, actually. Oh, God. Um, I want to I hit one more thing, because one of the key points you bring up, and I think you do a good job of bringing it up uh, in a way that is uh, thoughtful, because even I have like mixed feelings about this, is the notion of regulation and the notion of basically just different organized ways of dealing with this. So it could be regulation, it could be unions, but all these different, and, and um, what do you call it? Uh, not accreditation, but um, licensing. licensing. Yes, thank you. And all of these things, and, and, and we've talked about this too. Uh, I think if we think about bias, like there's a similar to just world hypothesis, there's this thing called system justification bias, where basically even no matter how badly the system treats you, you basically assume it's still doing the right thing. <laughs> and it's, it's really frustrating because the people it hurts the most still end up thinking the system's doing the right thing. And it leads to like poor voter turnout and all sorts of other bad stuff. But right. similar to this, I feel like there's a resistance to thinking about regulation or licensing because, whoa, 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 whoa the system's fine. Why are you trying to mess with it? You're going to make it worse, right? And well, uh, yeah. The first thing that we need to get over is this idea that we're going to have a choice in the matter. Mm. Because that, that ship has sailed, honeys. Mm -hmm. We had an opportunity to regulate ourselves, and we haven't taken it. And now it's gone. Yeah. There's, there's a poster hanging in the Facebook campus. Um, or I don't know if it still is, but it was at one point, very recently, uh, that said, Orville Wright didn't have a license anti-licensing poster mm. so of course i mean uh, like and and i wonder how many of those libertarian non-regulation freaks would get on a plane this today uh with a with an unlicensed pilot yeah we spent the first 20 years or so of the internet just figuring out what the hell this thing was mm. And, and and building a lot of shit just to see if it would work, and uh, I mean there was there was a wild west quality to the whole thing, and I don't think all of that was horrible. Um, I th I think there was definitely a point where we should have taken a better look at what was happening. Mm -hmm. I think you know as in all things, it started going south when the big money came in. Sure. Um, but 
there's a, there's a time when you know you're experimenting and seeing what things do and you're the only plane in the sky yeah there was nobody to give orville wright a license but at some point orville's neighbor decided that he could also fly a plane and orville's neighbor got a plane and they started like having close calls in the sky i'm making this shit up <laughs> but you get where I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. At some point, you're going to have a lot of planes in the sky, and then somebody's going to start need to look at all these planes and where are they going? And holy shit, maybe we should have things like flight paths. And maybe the people flying these planes, especially now that we have people who aren't pilots on the planes, like passengers, maybe they should know what they're talking Maybe we should make sure that they know what they're doing. And one of the books that I talk about in my book was The Jungle. Do you read The Jungle? Oh, uh, I, I, I haven't yet, but the quote you, you pick up from that is just always ringing in my head. It is. Oh, God, I always forget it when it comes up. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's hard to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depends upon him not understanding. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, The Jungle was the story of the, the meatpacking industry at the turn of the last century, specifically uh, the Chicago stockyards. And this was right after, or, or this was right around the area of refrigeration, mm. uh, where uh, cattle, cattle, cattlemen? I was gonna say farmers, but that's not right. You don't farm cattle. <laughs> uh, cattle ranchers? ranchers? Yeah, ranchers. sure. <laughs> ranchers, were shipping, ranchers were shipping all their meat to Chicago, and from Chicago they would be distributed you know, to the rest of the United States. And um, the problem was that, that the refrigeration trucks were breaking down or, th or they didn't exist yet, I don't really remember. But anyway, there was shit in the meat. Mm -hmm. And there was bad meat and there was meat making people sick. And, and um, uh, the jungle um, told the story of how this was all going on. And uh, it, it, it novelized it, and it's, it's actually an amazing read. Mm. Um, but it novelized all of the problems that were going on in the meatpacking industry, which, by the way, was, you know, the Wild West at that point. Mm. There weren't any regulations towards this shit. And uh, people stopped buying meat. Yeah. People started reading the book. They stopped buying meat. Uh, the, the meat industry freaked out. Teddy Roosevelt stepped in and said, okay, we need to regulate all this shit so that people can trust the meat again so that they can start buying meat again uh, so the the meat industry doesn't uh, collapse. Yeah, and that, and that, yeah. But it was that regulation that got people to trust what was going on. Now, we're certainly at an era now uh, where uh, non, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're normal folk, let's say. Normal folk um, are beginning to get a little wary of shit like Facebook and, yeah. and Twitter. They're freaking out about a, a bit. You've got, I mean, you've got people paying attention to the election crap that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you've got you've got uh, the, the, the big orange racist uh, up there. Um, and now he's 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 going off on his lying crap about how there's uh, an, an anti-right-wing bias um, to, to all of this shit, and he's threatening to regulate it. So we have created a perfect storm of shit. Mm. So is as we inexorably then <laughs> move into this era of regulation and this era of licensing, and I'm talking about licensing in, in particular. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna close on this. The um, one of the issues I had when you, when you first started talking about licensing, because I completely saw your point around, we license other dangerous things. We can all agree tech is extremely dangerous. Why aren't we licensing it? Was mine thought of, oh, licensing is a good idea in principle. It is also an extremely good way to institutionalize bias. Right to sort of yep. say, oh, if you want a license, okay, it's going to cost this much, and this group of white men will decide whether or not you, yep. black woman, get to have a license. Right, so it's super easy for that to happen. So what I want to talk about a little bit here is, what kind of ways can we think about to um, m mitigate, right, bias sort of seeping into licensing if and when we do actually get it. Well, this is going to sound like a cop out. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I do mention in the book, I mentioned that this is one of the biggest problems with licensing and um, I don't know how to solve it. Mm. That's fair. <laughs> I am a white dude. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, well, the, the first thing that we need to do is we need to figure out, like, who should be talking about this? Mm -hmm. I did not want to present a solution to this in the book because it would be a solution from a white dude. And, and, mm -hmm. and I mean, if a white dude starts telling you about how to solve bias problems, run. <laughs> Well, no, that's that's totally fair, though, right? And that's when I think about this problem, what I keep coming back to is, oh, the people deciding this should be the people who have been most harmed, right? Like, to me, that is the most surefire, and it's still not bulletproof, but the most surefire way to um, mitigate, like, at least the historical biases, right, that we've, that we've already done. We can make all new mistakes, but the old mistakes, at least, if we focus on letting the giving power to the people who have been hurt by this to make these kinds of decisions, that is probably a good first step. But I, and I will say that there's absolutely no way that we should accept any solution that put extra burden on people who are already underrepresented in this industry. Yeah. I, I, I will come out against licensing myself mm -hmm. if that turns out to be the case. Yeah. Because, I mean, we need to be making it easier for people, not harder. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good note to end on. Mike, it has been fantastic as always. Thank you very much. You want to tell us the name of your book again, where we can get it? The name of the, the, name of the book is Ruined by Design, and you can, um, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can also get it in zine form. Oh, yeah. I heard about this. It looks very cool. So I, um, I self-published the thing for reasons that, um, that are too, too many to get into. Um, but one of the things that, w one of the many positive things about that process is that I got to keep playing. Mm. And I always saw this book as a zine. Really? Oh, yeah. Cause, I mean, I grew up a, 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 an angry little punk rock. Boy, so, <laughs> um, like, you know, going to Abe Steaks in West Philly. Uh, seeing punk rock shows, and there were all these people giving out zines. Mm. Um, and I, I thought, this, this, I really want to do this as a zine. Uh, and I found the press in Union City, California, and oh my God, is that name not perfect? <laughs> uh, Union City, California, and it's a small uh, employee-owned shop, and it's the shop that used to print Maximum Rock and Roll before they, they uh, ceased operation. Um, so the, the Ruin by Design zine got printed on the very same press that Maximum Rock and Roll used to get printed on. Huh. That's awesome. And it, and it leaves so much ink on your hands when you read it. Really? <laughs> so that's a feature, not a bug. Oh, it's such a feature. <laughs> to me, it's a feature. If you don't like getting ink on your hands, you can, uh, you can get the book. Uh, also, yesterday, we, uh, the audio book finally came out. Oh, congrats. Read by you. So if you want to, if you want to hear this voice, <laughs> plus hours. Awesome. Uh, well, Mike, uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast. David, it's been it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, uh, I'm excited to, to to hang out again. Awesome. We we will do that um, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time.